For decades, the government, mainly the Defense Department, have used consortium, organized groups of companies, to acquire advanced technologies. Now the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University has urged the Pentagon to consider a list of ways to improve the consortium model. Here with more, Center Senior Fellow Stephanie Halcrow. Ms. Halcrow, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Sure glad to join you this morning. So my first questions are why a monograph that you have published on consortia now, and you begin by explaining that this paper is not about other transaction authorities. So maybe tie together some dots for us. Why is consortia important at this time? And what's the relationship between consortia and the use of other transaction authorities? Thanks. The idea of consortia and other transaction authorities is often conflated. People think that they're the same thing and that consortia have to use OTAs to do their business. And what we found in this report is that actually the first consortia did not use OTs. And there are consortia out there today who don't use OTs. And in the past year, two years, there's been a lot of reports written on OTs. And we wanted to make sure that we differentiated that we were going to be looking at consortia, specifically the consortia model, and not at the use of OTs. All right, let's talk about the consortia model then, the consortium model. As you point out, it goes back almost 40 years, and the National Armaments Consortium, which has been a guest on this show, is kind of the granddaddy of them. Just briefly explain to us what they are and what the government tends to buy from them, and maybe just a quick survey of the consortia out there that you tallied up. Yeah, absolutely. At the time that we published the report, we found that there's 42 consortia out there doing business with the government. And I say at the time that we published this report is because there are new consortia being organized around different technology areas all the time to meet government needs. The consortia model consists of three entities, and every consortia model is unique, but typically there's a government sponsor. There is a consortia which organizes the members around a certain technology. And then sometimes, most often, there's what we call a consortia management firm who provides a lot of the administrative support for the consortia, for the government in doing that. Sometimes the consortia provide those services as well. But over time, we've seen the consortia management firm become one of those three pillars of the consortium model. Got it. And the consortiums, the consortia, are generally composed of well-known companies, the ones I've looked at lists of. So what is the advantage to the government of having companies that it's already doing business with elsewhere in a consortium? Yeah, it's interesting. When I started writing this report and had the opportunity to work on this, I did not know a lot about consortia. And I had worked on the Hill. And when I approached this report, I said, you know, I want to write the report that I always wanted to read when I was working on the Armed Services Committee. And one of those questions was like, who are the members and what is the makeup? And we got 12 consortia out of the 42 to provide us data on their membership. We found that about 77% of the members across the board are non-traditional defense contractors, specifically according to the definition that is in statute. That was pleasantly surprising to me to find that over three quarters of the members of these consortia were companies you had not heard of. And so that's why in the title of the report, we say, hey, we're expanding the consortia model expands the defense industrial base. Got it. So it's a place to get innovation. And let me just ask you this. When a requirement is put to the consortium through the consortium management firm, 
typically, and the consortium does something that results in a bid for that requirement, does the government end up buying from a single member of the consortium or a couple of companies? Because you can't really buy from the consortium itself because it's just an idea that is behind a management company. So you have to buy from a company ultimately. Yeah. So the contract is usually awarded to the consortia, which then passes it on to the industry. The consortia doesn't do much work. So this is why we sometimes see in the roll-up of data where the consortia management firms specifically seem like they're getting a lot of money, but that money is typically being flowed to the industry that is a member of that consortia. Interesting. We're speaking with Stephanie Halcrow. She's senior fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. And does the government have any say over the flow down of that money, or is it up to the consortium management firm to decide the best company to fulfill that requirement? The government chooses who gets that award. What the consortia provide and somewhat the consortia management firm is the collaboration opportunity between the industry and the government to talk Talk about what is the requirements the government's looking for, what are the products and services that the industry can bring, and that informs oftentimes the government requirements and enhances them. So that collaboration between industry and the members of the consortia that the consortia put together and allowed to happen is really one of the value propositions that we highlight as why government benefits from consortia. Right. And as your report describes, it's a unique form. It's not exactly a GWAC, although it has elements of that. It's not exactly a multiple award contract with task orders, although it has elements of that. It's not exactly the GSA schedules, and it even has elements of that. It's unique in what it pulls together. And so therefore, you have thought that maybe the Pentagon needs to look at some recommendations for preserving and strengthening the consortium model, assuming that it has the value that you don't get from GWACs and schedules and the rest of it. So let's go over what the chief recommendations are that you feel would strengthen the consortium model. One of the things that we tried to do in this report is focus on the data and look at what the value proposition was from the data. Frankly, the data was hard to find. It's not publicly easily accessible. We had to go out to individual consortia by individual consortia and ask them to provide certain data. We were able to get 12 of the 42 to participate. That's great. The data was very positive. We recommend that the Department of Defense embrace transparency and visibility with the data in a publicly available format. Congress, over the last several years, has been upping the requirements on the Department of Defense each year on what they have to provide with regards to OT specifically. We think that that is good, we support that, and we think it will support the value proposition. In the same conversation, people will say, well, you know what? Maybe we need to like flow down some of the FAR requirements to the OTs. And we recommend that we avoid any additional regulatory burden because the flexibility that is provided through OT contract vehicle that the consortia leverage sure. is really foundational to the benefit. Right. Sometimes Congress can hug something a little too closely, in other words. Congress and DOD, you know, there's a lot of people that can add regulatory burden and have that input. So avoid that at all costs. 
All right, so some transparency. Maybe the Federal Procurement Database would be the place that that information could be shared with an asterisk. This was a consortium, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And the FY22 NDA provided some very specific direction, not only to DOD to collect the data, but also for GSA to track and publish the data publicly. And we applaud that. All right. Any other main recommendations? Well, I think the other unique opportunity that's provided in statute is the ability to transition a prototype that is typically the type of activity that is done in consortia to production. The information linking prototypes to production is very difficult to find because typically the prototype is done in the consortia, but the production contract is done directly with the government. So linking those two together and taking that opportunity to transition things from prototype to production, we also recommend the government do that more. Right. The big danger is a small, innovative company gets a challenge grant or a OTA contract to build a prototype. And then, you know, Northrop Grumman gets to build 100,000, not what we should be seeing, in other words. Well, and I'd say one of the case studies in the report actually highlights the ability through the consortium model, a non-traditional defense contractor, a small company potentially, or a company that doesn't do business with the government, to be tested by the Department of Defense on a prototype. And when there's successful completion of that, then the government has confidence in the company that they can actually go to production. So exactly. So you you continue to expand the defense industrial base by leveraging this ability to transition efforts from prototype to production. All right. Some interesting thoughts. Stephanie Halcrow is Senior Fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Sure. Appreciate being here this morning. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that consortium report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, 
He took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so 
I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.